2: Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review a monitor of the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 34 in our series for 2020, and today's date is Friday the 25th of September. First, I'll be talking to Amar Goel, Founder and CEO of Safeter. Safeter is a mobile, app-based technology that enables employers to bring their employees back to work safely. It is offering many of its features for free to help people be safe and get the economy going again. And I'll be talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering about the latest unemployment figures. But now, let's talk to Amar Goel. Amar, uh, tell us about Safeter, uh, It's an app-based technology to helping employers bring employees back to work safely, and uh, it has all the mechanisms to ensure employees are safely back. Tell us about it.
0: Yeah, so really, Safeter is a kind of a platform, a solution that helps employers kind of bring their workers, employees, back to work safely, and employees you know, can really make sure that they're staying safe and that they're keeping their colleagues safe. And so we do a number of things to try to help with that. And some of the key things I would talk about is, one is that we, we enable people to easily do a symptom check on their mobile app. And so, you know, you wake up in the morning before you would potentially come to the office, you would fill out this kind of four-question survey recommended by the WHO and CDC. That you know, just ask some simple questions. It takes, you know, probably 20 seconds. For example, you know, are you do you have any symptoms that, you know, might, you know, uh, that, that are the symptoms of, of coronavirus or of COVID-19, or do you, you know, do you have a fever? Have you been traveling to anywhere that has, you know, significant cases, et cetera? So that's kind of, you know, the, one of the key things it's called a symptom check or a health check or attestation, but kind of goes by those terms. And then another big thing that we do is employee scheduling. So a lot of employers are kind of struggling with this issue of, Hey, I used to have 500 people in his office, but, you know, now I only going to have a hundred people, you know, coming, coming back into the office. So how do I figure out who are those right, you know, hundred people? And so we provide a number of different kind of approaches to doing that. Some people are saying, okay, I'll give a hundred passes for today. And so if everyone went through the symptom check and they're healthy, they can go and book a pass and the first hundred, you know, are eligible but you might even have some like priority people like an admin or IT that, you know, need to be able to come no matter what. So we help you with that. Another approach there is the idea of cohort scheduling or group scheduling. So a lot of employers are saying, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to break those 500 employees into five groups, you know, A, B, C, D, 100 people in group A, 100 people in group B. So group A can come Monday, group B can come Tuesday, group C can come Wednesday. And, you know, that has some pros and cons compared to the other approach, but we enable you to do that. And there's even sort of stuff on top of that, which is a lot of employers, in, especially in urban areas, are saying, "Hey, I don't want people kind of congregating and, and clustering at the elevator, you know, and I don't want pe- too many people showing up at the elevator at one time, because you know, if I've got 100 people, or 500 people coming in to an office tower. I don't want them all showing up at 8:45 to 9:15, and then they're all touching the elevator button at the same time. There's too many people waiting in line." So we let you kind of space out when people even coming you know, to, to get into, let's say the elevator or the front door. So that's kind of a, a second big thing. Another key thing we allow you to kind of manage is, is uh, <clears throat> if you're doing temperature checks and then maybe the last thing I'll kind of mention that we see a lot of people very interested in is visitor management, guest management. So, you know, If somebody is coming and visiting my office, you know, what protocols do I have for those folks and then being able to enforce those or making them take a symptom check or temperatures, et cetera.
2: How would Google and Apple be impacting on its rollout?
0: Yeah, well, uh, it's a little bit complicated, but, uh, or what's the right word, Um, delicate. But I think that what we are seeing is that Google and Apple, you know, because of their Sort of power to approve or disprove anything in their app stores. You know they are limiting who can enable contact tracing. You know for their for their applications. And so we actually had contact tracing built into our application, which we think is a really valuable way for employers and employees to kind of stay safe in the workforce. That if somebody tests positive, um, by the way, I didn't mention that you can register who's tested positive and who's tested negative, so you can sort of track. know the health of your employee base as people get tested but you know if let's say you and I both work in the same office and we for whatever reason sat in a room together and had a meeting and then I turns out I test positive contact tracing as I'm sure you're familiar with would allow us to notify you immediately that hey you were in touch with somebody who is you know has the disease and so you may have been exposed and you should quarantine at home for a few days well Google and Apple are kind of controlling who it has who is able to release that functionality. And so, you know, they, they actually made us take it out of, uh, take it out of the app.
2: Okay, well that's, that's, a, that's a bit of a problem.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I understand their concerns for sure. You know, they have privacy concerns and, um, you know, they want to make sure that things are done well and, and people's privacy is not exposed. But at the same point, I think that there is a lot of important issues around people's health that and em- employers need the tools to be able to manage their work sites
2: right and uh, this could be ongoing because i mean there'll be some companies where the employers are selected to say work at home instead of coming into work or yeah. or they might say look I'll, I'll work at home for two days a week and coming to work three and that yeah. might change over time so does the app take all of that into account
0: yeah absolutely so i mean you know we we basically um you know, we're, we're helping manage when the person wants to come into the office. We're not, you know, handling right now when somebody says they want to work at home. But but effectively, employers, I think, are very concerned about when people want to come to the office to make sure that everything's safe there, social distancing, PPE, all that. When you're at home, you know, I think just the last six months have kind of proved that, you know, people have gotten the whatever setup they need done at, at home for the most part. So, so our app is really focused on it. when somebody's at home, that's great, um, but when they want to transition back to the office, let's say, like you just said, two days a week, then how do we make sure that, you know, you've got enough social distancing, you know, you don't have overcrowding, you are healthy when you come back in, et cetera. I think, I think by the way, you put hit on an important point, which is, I think that's where a lot of work is going. You know, um, we just did a webinar at you the know, Office of the Future, and um, we were talking with the somebody a real estate expert and that was kind of one of the topics like how our office is going to be relayed out which kinds of jobs could potentially transition to remote work versus being more in the office but i do think a lot of people are going to be much more in of a hybrid model going forward
2: okay now i think this would be quite key for companies because uh companies would surely be thinking about liability in in the uh, post-covid era
0: yeah no i think i think that that's definitely true um, you know, I think that it's important for a lot of companies to make sure that they're A, doing the right thing and helping their employees be safe. But then also, you know, there's some value, I think, in recording that from a compliance standpoint. Um, and frankly, there's a lot of, you know, concern about, hey, if somebody gets sick, I want to make sure that I understand who, you know, what else has been going on, you know, were they doing, were they filling out their, their health survey? Have we taken their temperature? So I think there, you know, there is a compliance and liability standpoint that employers for sure want to manage.
2: I think uh, you're probably going to see a role in companies where HR becomes like a health officer.
0: Yeah. No, you, you, it's actually, um, it's kind of something we've heard a bunch from HR, right? They're, they're basically saying, hey, I'm, I feel like I'm now the chief medical officer. <laughs> and, you know, I've gotten a whole new set of responsibilities, which I wasn't really necessarily qualified to do. And now it's kind of a whole new role that I have to manage and handle.
2: Right. Okay. Okay. So no doubt uh, this uh, safety app would would come in handy for yeah. That's our hope, right?
0: Is that we sort of take a lot of this burden off of HR, and then we provide them, you know, or safety teams. Depends on you know different companies. There's many of them have set up like a task force um, that is kind of reviewing this stuff on a. I mean, at first it was on a daily basis, but now probably more on a weekly basis. But HR, you know, is often kind of, I think, um, tasked with, you know, taking the bulk of the, the onus on. And yeah, I mean, our goal is, you know, you get these reports, you get dashboards, so you you know, the system sort of is managing itself in the sense of people are, you know, you being able to manage all that paperwork and compliance and tracking that, you, you know, would otherwise maybe take a whole person or two people to do.
2: And so the safety app would uh, help fit in with that role help, help manage that work wouldn't
0: it yeah yeah absolutely right.
2: okay 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 so uh this will be fairly permanent i'd imagine in the workplace of the future because uh, apart from
0: coronavirus we're going to have more epidemics in the years to come would you I mean, mean i think it's it's definitely i i really hope not <laughs> but you know i feel like maybe every five to seven years there has been some sort of Epidemic, right? Uh, you know, SARS, MERS, you know, et cetera, H1N1. But you know, I think coronavirus uh, has certainly been kind of at a whole another level, where it, you know, literally bring the world to a to a halt. I mean, I think at the peak in April, you know, some two or three billion people were at stay at home and under some stay at home orders. So I think it would help manage through that. Like I said, I frankly hope that there are not other pandemics at least soon. <laughs> and um, if, if I hope there never are. And, um, but yes, I mean, if there are other ones, obviously our tool would, would be able to help with that. But yeah, we're more focused, I would say, to be honest, right now on helping eliminate the COVID.
2: Well, Emma, uh, look, thank you very much for your time. And it's a very important app. And uh, we'll all be watching that very closely. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. And now let's talk to Indeed Economist Callum Pickering. Well, Callum, uh, what's your assessment of the latest unemployment figure? It got down from 7.5% to 6.8%,
3: but uh, what's the view about it? The unemployment rate was actually expected to increase slightly um, from the 7.5% rate it was last um, month. So a decline to 6.8% was certainly a a welcome development. As to was the overall employment gains, 111,000 people rejoining the, the workforce in August and that brought the gains over the past three months up to uh, 458 thousand people. Um, so we're certainly heading in the, in the right direction. but
2: uh, we had a divergence between uh, Victoria and the rest of the country
3: yeah that's right um, you know we, we definitely have a, a two-speed economy by now um, the Victorian economy is struggling and that's reflected in their labour market. Figures, employment in Victoria fell by 42,400 people in August and overall employment's down around 5.5% since March and that compares with a 2.4% decline for the rest of the country. Um, the, The likelihood is that the Victorian labour market isn't going to meaningfully improve until those restrictions can be lifted.
2: So does that mean Victorian employment will be a drag on Australia's economic recovery?
3: Well, it certainly will be. Yeah, as as I said, uh, Victorian employment is down 5.5%, which is a considerable amount since March, whereas the rest of Australia is down 2.4%. That's not a great result. I mean, that's a big decline in normal circumstances. But given where we were just a few months ago, the rest of Australia is in a a much more optimistic situation, and you would expect that recovery to continue for the rest of Australia. Um, But there is that risk that Victoria could provide a bit of a drag on, on that recovery. And what that basically means is that uh, the rest of the country may grow a little bit slower than they otherwise would have because of that weakness in Victoria and that weakness spilling over to other um, sectors and regions of the economy.
2: Do the figures actually um, do justice to the economic damage caused by COVID-19? Well,
3: there's always devil in details. Um, So while the unemployment rate has certainly improved um, down to 6.8%, underemployment is a big issue. Right now, it's at 11.2%. That is very high by historical standards. It's also worth bearing in mind that around 90% of the jobs grabbed over the past three months have been part-time jobs. Um, so a lot of people are getting the hours that they would normally be accustomed to. And that's a reminder that this recovery is really a two-step process one is getting people back into work. The second step is getting people back into the, the hours that they normally work as, as well. And so we do need to sort of take a step back and look at the big picture when we're analysing these data. We can't just focus on the unemployment rate because there's so much more going on across the labour market. Okay.
2: And of course, I mean, if you have a big increase in working part-time work, it means there's going to be a lot more underemployed people in the workforce. Would that
3: be right? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And, you know, one of the things we have observed over the past three months is that the unemployment rate has improved, but there'sn't really been a meaningful change in the underemployment rate. Um, that's taking a lot longer to, to come down, and part of that is because a lot of the jobs that are being created are part-time right now, and presumably some of those people who are now entering the workforce in a part-time capacity, would prefer to be working closer to a full-time schedule. One of the things we did observe when we came out of the global financial crisis was that a lot of the jobs were being created were part-time and the underemployment rate remained high for a number of years, even after the unemployment rate came down. So there is a good chance that that will happen again as we emerge from uh, this crisis. And that means that we do need to look at these sort of broader measures of labour market conditions to get a... a proper assessment of what's going on.
2: Well, the other issue too is uh, the changes with JobKeeper and JobSeeker, and that surely will have an impact on the unemployment rate.
3: Well, absolutely. The, the economy's really been held together um, by JobKeeper and JobSeeker since earlier this year. I mean, th- those two policies are the reason why the unemployment rate didn't spike above 10%. We, At the end of September, the, those policies are being diminished somewhat. There's, there's still in effect until... March next year, but they're just not going to be as sizeable as they have been since the crisis began, and that could certainly prove disruptive for a lot of Australian businesses and households that have come to rely on those measures. Um, so I, I expect that the labour market recovery could maybe not take a step back, but certainly slow down as we transition into that lower rate of, of job keeper and job seeker payments.
2: That suggests that maybe the unemployment rate as job keeper is diminished. Could that suggest that uh, unemployment could actually increase again?
3: Well, it's certainly a risk. Because the economy has come to rely on these policies so much, Um, it has created a somewhat distorted view of how strong the Australian economy is and how well the labour market is doing. And I think we're going to find out a lot about how much damage has been done by COVID-19 as we diminish the impact of, of these, uh, these policies, which is something that we're going to see over the, the next six months. While I'm optimistic that the recovery will continue, particularly outside Victoria, I certainly wouldn't necessarily be surprised if, if the recovery slowed down a lot beginning in October as um, you know the JobKeeper payments decline. And, you know, depending on the degree to which businesses have relied on these payments, and I don't think anyone really has a good grasp of that, there is, of course, that risk that the economy could go backwards.
2: And uh, and so, I mean, the RBA has forecast unemployment to be at around 10% by the end of the year. Uh, um, That's uh, 1.3 million Australians unemployed. Uh,
3: Do do you think we're heading in that direction or not? Well, it's it's worth remembering that they made those forecasts before. The latest labour market figures, which were much better than expected. Um, so there is a good chance if you ask the RBA today what their view is, they may have lowered those unemployment rate expectations. I think that certainly at this stage, and based on everything we know, based on what just happened yesterday with the unemployment rate, I think it would be surprising if the unemployment rate got to 10% by the end of the year. I think the Reserve Bank is going to thankfully upgrade their unemployment estimates. Now, there's certainly a possibility that it could increase, as I said regarding you know the uncertainty surrounding JobKeeper. Obviously, there's uncertainty surrounding Victoria as well in terms of you know when they're going to emerge. Um, but right now, I think it is unlikely that the unemployment rate will get to 10 percent by the end of this year.
2: Okay, of course, and of course we have a budget coming up in October. So, uh, do you what action do you expect the government could take to address this issue?
3: Well, what I really want to see from the government is, is a firm plan for the future from a fiscal perspective. So we've had a lot of support measures that have kept the economy afloat over the past six months, and and those policies will remain in place for the next six months to a diminished degree. But what I really want to see is a a plan for the next two or three years, because we know that recessions tend to leave a, a lingering impact on households and businesses. You don't tend to recover from them quickly. And so for the Australian economy to thrive over the next few years, we're going to need sustained and prolonged uh, fiscal support from the federal government, and that's going to require some near-term financial support, you know, similar to the JobKeeper and JobSeeker payments that we have seen over the past six months. But it also needs bigger picture, um, longer-term projects, um, infrastructure investment, all these sort of different things that the the federal government can rely on to, to keep the economy um, ticking over over the next couple of years. So really, I mean, it, it just comes down to having that uh, long-term plan that can really support the economy going forward.
2: Which would also mean uh, help for businesses and uh, encouragement for businesses and
3: startups, which employ people. Oh, absolutely. Um, the small business community is incredibly important to the health of the Australian economy. You know, some 97% of Australian businesses are of the small variety. Uh, we tend to focus on medium-sized and large businesses, uh, but most businesses are, are pretty small. Um, sole traders, partnerships, businesses employing just a just a handful of people. And certainly those are businesses that will have been hit hard by COVID-19. They're the businesses that don't really have much to fall back on during difficult circumstances. And so policies that support small businesses going forward are going to be incredibly important as uh, Australia um, continues on the path to recovery.
2: Well... Callum, uh, that's all very, very fascinating and thank you very much for your time. And thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, the biggest collapse in Australia's population growth since World War I will drive a huge fall in new home construction that could hold back the nation's recovery from the coronavirus recession. Research released by the Federal Government's National Housing Finance and Investment Corporation forecasts that demand for housing could be cut by between 129,000 and 232,000 dwellings over the next three years in a development that would hit the vital construction sector. Rents, particularly in the inner suburbs of Sydney and Melbourne, also face a sharp fall, as a lack of international students exacerbates an expected fall in the number of migrants wanting to call Australia home. About 60% of a nation's population growth over the past decade has been driven by net overseas migration, which totals 2.7 million residents. the closure of the border, as well as concern globally among people moving between nations, is expected to lead to that collapse. The number of international students, who account for about half of net overseas migration, has also collapsed in a development that has forced some major universities to cut staff. The corporation, which provides advice to the government on housing demand, estimates that in a worst-case scenario, there would be 214,000 fewer people in the country than if the coronavirus had not occurred between 2019 and 2021. It would be the biggest slowdown in population growth since 1916 and 1917, when hundreds of thousands of Australians were overseas involved in World War One. And Australia's house prices are set to fall by up to 10% over the next 12 to 18 months, as net immigration weakens sharply, credit agency Fitch Ratings has warned. The agency expects drops to be in the range of 5 to 10%, and is in keeping with recent forecasts by economists who are calling a softer landing for the housing market than initially feared. Fitch said immigration had already been slowing prior to the outbreak of the pandemic, but has plunged since the health crisis led to strict controls on international travel. And six months after the COVID-19 crisis began, and business payrolls remain well below pre-crisis levels. They're still down 4.5% compared with March 14 led by the recent deterioration in Victoria and ongoing weakness in New South Wales and Queensland. The impact of Victoria's second lockdown has been similar, from a jobs perspective, to the first lockdown. Victorian payrolls are down 8.3% compared with pre-crisis levels, only slightly above their April low. The result is devastating for the Victorian economy, with recovery certain to be a slow one. Of course, other states aren't out of the woods either. Payrolls in New South Wales and Queensland are still 3.7% and 3.2% below their pre-crisis level, respectively. That might not seem so bad next to Victoria, but declines of this nature are still monumental from an economic perspective. And Scott Morrison has all but confirmed income tax cuts will be brought forward in the budget after slamming a new advertising campaign arguing against a move as taking money out of people's pockets. The Prime Minister's blunt response was triggered by a new national campaign launched by the left-wing think tank, the Australia Institute, urging the Morrison government not to fast-track income tax cuts in the October 6 budget. The campaign, rolled out on television screen, is arguing against the early introduction of legislated tax cuts worth up to $2,565 a year. The tax cuts worth $20 billion were scheduled to come into force in 2022. The campaign against the early introduction of tax cuts is being supported by 40 prominent Australians, including Bernie Fraser, former Governor of the Reserve Bank, Stephen Grenville, former Deputy Governor of the Reserve Bank, and Professor Peter Doherty, Nobel Laureate in Medicine. And more than half a billion dollars in unpaid superannuation will be repaid to almost 400,000 Australian workers. Under the federal government's superannuation guarantee amnesty, 24,000 businesses confessed to failing to pay employees their entitlements before the September 7 deadline. New Australian Taxation Office figures show at least 393,000 employees will have money paid into their super funds or their bank accounts if they're no longer working. Employers disclosed and repaid $588 million in unpaid contributions, including 10% interest for each year the money was outstanding. About 55% of businesses that confessed not to making compulsory payments dating back to July 1992 applied in the last week of the amnesty. This included 7,000 on the final day, as payments made before the cut-off were tax-deductible. A further $33 million in contributions are subject to payment plans established to help businesses struggling during the coronavirus pandemic. And hydrogen, batteries, green steel, carbon capture and storage, and soil carbon have been identified by the federal government as a 5 top-priority low-emission technologies it will aim to develop over the next decade. The long-awaited technology roadmap, released by Energy Minister Angus Taylor, ranks energy efficiency and electric and hydrogen vehicle recharging infrastructure as second-level emerging technologies, while nuclear power is delegated to a third-order watching brief priority. Mature technologies, including coal, gas, wind and solar, come fourth and last on the priority list. The latter will no longer warrant government investment unless there's a clear market failure and intervention is warranted. This underpinned Scott Morrison's threat last week to build a gas-fired power station in New South Wales unless the private sector replaces the capacity that will be lost with the closure of a Liddell power station in 2023. The government said it would invest $18 billion in the five priority technologies over the next decade and would streamline regulation and legislation to encourage up to $50 billion of private sector investment. But former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull says the government's focus on a gas-led economic recovery is a fantasy and crazy stuff that should not be part of the coalition's energy policy. Mr Turnbull said gas was an expensive fuel and should not be heavily invested in. And Reserve Bank Deputy Governor Guy DeBell has flagged that a further reduction in rates towards but not through zero and buying longer-term bonds remain the most likely policy tools at the central bank's disposal should the economic recovery falter. Dr DeBell also warned the unemployment rate could still rise despite a recent unexpected fall, while presenting four policy options the central bank has available should the economy need a further lift. Dr DeBell says that while the fall in the unemployment rate to 6.8% in August was unforeseen, the recovery in the labour market was likely to be bumpy and uneven. In a speech on Tuesday morning, Dr DeBell said overall the recovery has not been a rapid bounce, more of a slow grind. As the outlook for the Australian economy unfolds, the board would continue to assess the merits of the range of monetary options to best support the economic recovery, he said. The country's second most senior central banker repeated that, given the RBA's forecast for growth out to the end of 2022, it was highly unlikely that the cash rate would be lifted over the coming three years. The deputy governor said that under its central scenario, it would be more than three years before the economy neared a full employment level that would push inflation towards its target band. And the MBN Co. will spend $4.5 billion over the next two years to provide almost 10 million households and businesses with the option of high-speed fibre in a change of political direction by the coalition government. Years after building a controversial system which mostly used copper to connect homes to fibre nodes in the street, the government announced on Wednesday an upgrade which will devote $3.5 billion to laying high-speed fibre cables down streets past homes. Householders looking for vastly higher web speed will be able to have their homes connected by fibre to the network free of charge. They will, however, pay higher prices for their broadband plan, in line with the $149 a month paid by consumers already connected directly by fibre. These prices will continue to be set by retailers. On Tuesday, MBN announced a similar plan for business. At a cost of $700 million, about 1.4 million businesses would be eligible to have fibre rolled out to their premises, of charge. It will spend an initial $300 million improving internet services in the regions. The three initiatives, business, households and the region, add up to $4.5 billion investment in faster services. The money will be borrowed. The government will badge the upgrade as a, as a recession-busting infrastructure initiative that should create 25,000 jobs including 16,600 in industries such as construction, engineering, project management, transport and retail trade. With more people working from home, the government also forecasts the upgrade will boost GDP by $6.4 billion a year by 2024. It will also boost the MBN's attractiveness should the government choose to privatise it. And Macquarie Group and Commonwealth Bank are facing fresh scrutiny of their oversight of anti-money laundering laws after it emerged that overseas banks had reported close to US $167 million, that's 230 million Aussie, of potentially dirty money transactions flowing through the two Australian banks. The International Consortium of, Inve- of Investigative Journalism, or ICIJ, has released a massive leak of secret bank reports that show the Commonwealth Bank was flagged by overseas banks of over millions of dollars of transactions, including some in crime hotspots in Far Eastern Russia and Kazakhstan. Data released by the ICIJ on Monday shows more than US $174 million of possibly dirty money flowed through Australian banks. Macquarie accounted for 72% of the suspicious transactions by value, or US $123 million. The Commonwealth Bank was the next frequently named Australian bank in the data leak, with US $44 million of transactions flowing to or from the CBA, which are red flagged by other banks. ANZ, when including its Hong Kong branch, made up US $4.7 million. Three banks at the centre of the FinCEN files leak, Bank of New York, Mellon, BNY, Barclays and Standard Chartered, all filed the report with anti-money laundering authorities in, in, in the US as part of their reporting requirements. Banks around the world are required to report suspicious transactions to anti-money laundering regulators to stamp out dirty money dealings, including the funding of terrorism and organised crime activities such as drug dealing and tax evasion. It is not clear whether the Australian banks reported the transactions to the local money laundering regulator Austrac. This coincides with revelations that global banks face a fresh scandal about dirty money on Monday as they sought to limit the fallout from a cache of leaked documents showing they transferred more than US two trillion dollars at two point eight trillion Aussie in suspect funds over nearly two decades. Britain banks HSBC Holdings, Standard Charters and Barclays, Germany's Deutsche Bank and Commerzbank and US Headquarters' JP Morgan Chase & Co and Bank of New York Mellon were among the lenders named in the report by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists and based on leaked documents obtained by BuzzFeed News. And universities face a shortfall of $7.6 billion for research which will result in the loss of up to 6,100 jobs, or 11% of the research workforce, between now and 2024, according to a CSHE report published on Monday. More than 1 in 10 research positions at Australian universities are predicted to disappear by 2024, as revenue from overseas students dries up and prestigious group of eight institutions are tipped to lose the most resources. Some smaller universities, including Deakin University in Geelong, face an extremely high risk of recent strong research capacity gains unraveling as COVID-19 wipes out billions in revenue from fee-paying international students. That comes as the universities intensify their lobbying of Federal Education Minister Dan Tien for more money for research in next month's federal budget. The revenue collapse has come from falling international student income. All the group of eight universities will suffer badly, but some of the smaller universities that have higher international student income relative to total income now face serious consequences. The revenue margin losses for University of Technology Sydney, Deakin University in Victoria and Macquarie University in New South Wales are rated as extremely high, according to lead author Frank Larkins. An embattled wealth manager, AMP, has been named Australia's worst performing superannuation provider on fees and returns, taking the unwelcome mantle of the OnePath funds formerly owned by ANZ. An annual review of the 100 largest super funds by investment advisor Stockpot has found AMP has the highest number of so-called fat cat funds, with 12 products featuring on the list of those with relatively high fees and lacklustre return to members. The title worst fat Cap fund provider has been held by OnePass Stable, sold by ANZ to IWF in January since the research project began in 2013. More than 600 multi-asset investment options were scrutinised by the robo advisors, analysts, and coronavirus lockdowns are the perfect time for reading. Australian e-commerce group Booktopia has reported a 28% increase in new book sales during the 2020 financial year, with total sales topping $165 million for the first time. Demand for books has seen the company grow its customer database to 4.5 million, with over 1.4 million active customers. And Harvey Norman, is making the most of a boom in homeware spending because of the coronavirus pandemic, upping advertising as sales rose more than thirty percent in the first ten weeks of twenty twenty one. Harvey Norman said that aggregated sales revenue rose thirty point six percent during the period from first of july twenty twenty to the seventeenth of September, compared to the same period a year ago than a month after reporting a 26% increase in full-year tax profit to $636 million in 2020, Harvey Norman flagged a pre-tax profit of $178 million for the two months ending August, an increase of 186% on the $62.3 million earned in the same period a year ago. And COVID-19 has fueled an online sales surge at trans-Tasman retailer Kathmandu, but the bounce from bricks to clicks has been unable to offset temporary store closures, with the group's profits slumping 86% to New Zealand 8.1 million, that's 7.5 million Aussie. Online sales soared 63% to New Zealand 106.4 million in the year to July 31, representing 15.7% of direct-to-consumer sales. Chief Executive Xavier Simonet said it was a transformational year for Kathmandu, which also included the $350 million of Australian surf brand Rip Curl and the company Tapping into Uber's network of drivers to streamline its online sales and bolster its omni-channel strategy. Temporary store closures wiped New Zealand $50 million off the group's revenue. But it was still able to increase sales 48.7% to New Zealand 801.5 million thanks to the Rip Curl acquisition which contributed New Zealand 315.7 million from November 19 to July 20. Meanwhile, its core Katmandu brand generated New Zealand 426.4 million, a decrease of 9.7% compared with 2019. Revenue from Oboz, a Montana-based footwear brand, fell 15.2% to US 37.8 million or 52.8 million Aussie. And a study... Of top technology executives at a large number of Australia's biggest organisations has found they expect 43% of workers will be working from home after COVID-19 restrictions end and that there are significant plans to increase spending on innovation. Research firm ADAPT surveyed 220 of the largest local corporate and government organisations about their response to the COVID-19 pandemic and found the surge in remote working was likely to recede once restrictions ease but to nowhere near the level before March. The report predicts that 43% of an organization's staff will be away from their offices at any given time, rather than that percentage working permanently from home. Before COVID-19, ADAPT says this figure was 12%. It has been 73% during lockdown. Of the organisations surveyed, 69% said they were comfortable maintaining the current distributed workplace indefinitely. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to the founder of Mingle Seasoning, Jordan Evans, who's just recently launched three more seasoning flavours into one 850 coal supermarket, a deal worth around $1 million. And I'll be talking to economist Saul Eslake about what to expect in the forthcoming budget. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week, and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week.
0: Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com.
1: Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultrasoft Tissues